Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. of the end by Nine Inch Nails from their 2007 album Year Zero. Do we still call them albums these days? I think that they're albums if you get them on vinyl, and I've always kind of called them an album even if it was a CD. And the uh, if you're doing them in iTunes, I think they still have an album. I think uh, so. Album. So Okay, so 2007 album. We're old school enough, that's what we're going to call yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Alright, so yeah, that's uh, Nine Inch Nails. If you're a Twin Peaks fan, it's the Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Welcome to this month's episode and meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I am Richard Chamberlain from Kansas City Cinephile. We've got a big episode today. We have just returned from Monster Bash in Mars, Pennsylvania. We have all kinds of news and stories and some clips to play for you. Before we get into that, though, there's just a couple items of old business from last time. You know we don't like to leave threads hanging and and disseminate incorrect information. So we're, we're setting a couple things straight right now. First of all, we were talking about Beware, Beware the Blob from 1972. It was a sequel to The Blob that Larry Hagman directed. We weren't sure if he starred in it or not. And he did indeed have a small part. He played Young Hobo. <laughs> and uh, as I was looking that up, I found, uh, I just thought it was interesting, the tagline for this movie was the movie that J.R. shot. So this was after his big Dallas thing when everyone was asking who shot J.R. This was the movie that J.R. shot. Fairly certain the movie kind of came and went, and then all of a sudden, because he was post-Idrima Genie, so at that point, the 1970s was kind of that dark territory, kind of like William Shatner just did random things in the 70s, and all of a sudden that Star Trek thing kicked up. For him, it was Dallas, and all of a sudden this movie kind of resurfaced, I think, after that. And that tagline must have been added later because I don't think Dallas had started by 1972. No. So no. it was maybe lost. They resurrected it with the success of Dallas. I think that's what it was. Because yeah. I, I, Dallas started in 78, so yeah. this would have been a time that Larry Hagman had been kind of forgotten. He had been this TV star of the show, and, and I can't recall... Other than, I think he popped up on an episode of Columbo, maybe. I mean, I think he did some TV appearances. Again, kind of like Shatner. Shatner didn't do anything huge in the 70s. He made random TV appearances. But then when Star Trek The Motion Picture started in 79, all of a sudden Shatner became popular again. And then he did T.J. Hooker and Rescue 911 and every other thing that he did uh, for decades. So I think that was kind of the same thing for Larry Hagman. He was kind of in no man's land there for a while. And that's where the, where the blob kind of fell in. Hmm. 
And I just realized this is not totally random because uh, there was a blob connection to Monster Bash. Chris Yeaworth, I think, and probably if I'm butchering the name, I apologize. He is, I think he was the son of the director. The director, the curator of the blob itself, who is a sometimes guest at uh, Monster Bash, was not there this year. So, but that was their blob connection. I did not attend. We didn't attend that. No. And did they screen? They screened the blob too, didn't they? We didn't attend a lot of the screenings of the movies. We went to a lot of the Q and A's. Because I think a lot of the movie screenings, we took that time to hit up the the dealer's room, and I'm gonna—I don't know if they did or not. Uh, they may—I think they might have right before his segment. But again, I think we were spending money. Yeah, in the I had room. a real hard time wanting to sit in there and and watch a movie that I may have already seen. Yes, it would have been fun with an audience, but there was so much going on. I was—I I couldn't sit still. I didn't really like just sitting and watching a movie. I wanted to be out and about talking to people and. I think with, the with room. I think as with any con, there's there's you know a long list of stuff you want to do, and then you get there, and then you find that you're spending more time in the dealer's room, or in this particular case, just meeting a lot of people. You know, for me, people I had, had known virtually for ten or eleven years, or people who had heard me on the B movie cast, and the, this hotel was set up in a way that it was really. Uh, inviting to to hang out in the big courtyard area. They had lots of different seating areas, and that place was full all three days. Just people randomly in pockets, talking, and and you had good food at the hotel. There really was no reason to leave the hotel once you got there. And if you stayed there, you could just kind of come and go. And so it made it easy, I think, to to skip some of those the movie screenings and to take that time and do something else. Because you can watch the movies whenever. Now, we did see a few movies when we were there, but three, I think, in, in total. Usually when the dealer room was closed, or because they had screenings into the wee hours of the morning, so there, there were times you could go and you wouldn't be missing anything else. Right, right. I think, I think what you, it says with anything, you have to pick and choose what you attend. And so Chris Yeaworth, again, if that's the name, wasn't something that we attended. But there was a blob connection, and I think that they usually try to do that at Monster Bash. So one other quick thing, we're obviously already talking about Monster Bash, but let me just stick back in there. Last time we were talking about Willard and how it was a financial success and it had made $9.5 million. And I kind of wondered in uh, 1971, I guess, was that a lot of money? So adjusted for inflation today, that would have been almost $57.5 million. So that's pretty good for a low-budget movie even today. I think they would consider that a success. I think... Yeah, certainly uh, that movie would probably be something that would be kind of in and out horror film at the theaters, or might be a Netflix or Shutter exclusive. And so, yeah, fifty-seven million for that kind of a low-budget horror film—I think that's good by today's standards. Yeah. All right, so back to Monster Bash and something Richard said. Yeah, he talked about meeting people. This man was a celebrity. We would be walking down the aisle, and someone would come up and say, "Richard, Richard from Wichita." And uh, it was really, it was fun to watch because he knows so many people from over the years, from being on podcasts and calling in and online. So, I don't know, that was really cool to watch. It was, you know, I didn't let it go to my head. It was, it was, it made me smile because I've been doing voicemail on podcasts now for 11 years, ever since Cinema Slave with Joe Barlow and the B-movie cast with Vince Rotolo and Mail Order Zombie with, with Derek. I, 
and I've been calling in, and I was Richard from Wichita for so many years. That was my my little tagline name that I gave myself, and it just kind of rolled off the tongue. And it it's nice to have people who had walked up, heard my voice, and said, "Hey, you know, are, are you Richard from Wichita?" Or people that saw my name tag. It, it really it it kind of just made me feel good that hey, people were out there listening and stuff. And that was something I heard several times during this convention is that the positive side of the internet and social media is that it has helped grow the podcast community and being able to be friends with these people on Facebook. When we were all younger, we didn't have a lot of monster kids, right, that we hung out with. You know, I know I didn't. Uh, I don't know if you had very many you did. No. Nope. That seems to be the case, right? I mean, it was, seemed like it was just we were all kind of scattered and the internet's kind of brought everybody together. And something like Monster Bash gets everybody all in one place. And for for three days, as as Derek would say, you know, you're with your tribe. You're with, with people like you. And it was just nice to have people come up and introduce themselves and, and to meet these people face-to-face. People I had heard as well. Uh, Steve from Cannonsburg and Tom and Wolfie. Uh, again, some people from the B-Movie cast days. Uh, it's nice to, to have met so many people, and there's many others that I'm, I, I'm just throwing a blank on right now, but having an opportunity to meet, meeting Mary Rotolo for the first time. And, and sometimes people kind of think that we all have kind of met before, but it, it's even like I thought that, that Steve, you know, had been to to Monster Bash before and had met Vince and stuff, and he hadn't, and uh, Steve Sullivan. So... You kind of take for granted that we we all talk via social media and Facebook, but getting everybody in one place. And this year, the 20th anniversary of Monster Bash, I think, had the largest attendance as far as like you know people from the B movie cast and and all the related podcasts. It was the first time that this many people all kind of gathered in one spot. May never happen again, but this year it did. And to be part of that was simply awesome. And for me, it was different. It this was. I don't come from an active participation in the podcast community. This podcast we're doing is really my first. I'd called into Monster Kid Radio a few times. So I wasn't meeting these people with a prior knowledge of them, really. I had talked to most of them online. Some of them had made comments about our podcast, so that's how I had opened a communication with them. So there were a couple people that maybe spent a little more time with than others. Uh, Jonathan Angarello, Christopher yes. Page. Super, super nice guys. Getting to meet them, and like Richard said, ta- I had conversations I would never imagine having with people about monster movies and horror movies and podcasting and writing and, and all kinds of things that just in my everyday life, there aren't those people there. So it was like an instant connection, and I really like having that physical meeting to move forward as we continue, hopefully, good relationships on social media and see him again next year, hopefully. So it was that whole part of it, and that really is what most people say, that's what they like about Monster Bash, is that opportunity to get together. Sure, there's movies, there's events, there's dealer room, there's celebrities, but almost everyone said what they were looking forward to the most was this personal time with friends, past and future. I think, you know, we made a point of, of going out to, to dinner with, with groups uh, all three nights, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, of course, getting a chance to, to uh, go out to dinner and meet Derek, you know, the first night we were there, Thursday. 
some ways that was probably one of the best parts of the day, just, you know, getting down and talking to, as you said, having conversations that you and I have all the time, but being able to do it in a larger group and, and just being surrounded like that, that was huge. That, that's, that, uh, to me was, was probably the best part there's, we both came back with a lot of cool stuff from the vendor room. We had uh, a lot of uh, fun Q and a panels, which we're going to talk about and things that we saw, but yeah, getting an opportunity to meet everyone and, and making some new friendships and new people that we'd met. Steven Turek, I believe, if I'm getting that last name correct, becoming friends with him on Facebook this past week, having a great opportunity to see him and, of course, introducing his son, who is uh, getting into the monster movies and hearing his experiences and enjoying these things. I know he's making their, they're both making their way through all the Mimiverse films one at a time. And he's posting about that on Facebook. And so, as you mentioned, Jonathan, we we had a lot of fun with him, which we'll talk about heading out to the Living Dead Museum and Cemetery. So that was that's the fun part that's come out from all of this is the great friendships that can continue all year long, even though there may be only two or three days out of the year that we're all gathered in the same place. Being able to have those conversations online the rest of the year is, to me, the one big reason to stay on social media and Facebook when all the other stuff on Facebook drives you nuts, you know, I weed, weed out all that and stay focused on the good conversations that come out of it. And I didn't mean to give you short shift when I was saying I have no one to talk to and no conversations. Yes, you pointed out we do have that, but you know, it is nice to expand that group. And, and before I met you, I didn't even have that. So, well, and vice versa. So it was, it, it was, a, it's a lot of fun to be able to expand that group. And then, uh, kind of be the Kansas City chapter of, of, of the Monster Bash group, so to speak. And it's kind of fun. There's all these little pockets. And once a year, everyone converges. And, and again, you know, uh, we'll just say it right now. I'm going back. You're going back next year. Yep. Reserve the rooms already. As we left, I was joking on our way out, could we make reservations? I didn't really think they would hit the reset switch so soon. But sure enough, we'd come back. And within a couple of days, we can make our reservations. They've got a a guest list already started for next year so definitely going i think this is sooner than last year. i don't recall it being quite as quick last year to narrow down a date and already announce a, a guest with victoria price one of the big guests that they've announced for next year and i think that was possibly a holdover because she was originally going to be a guest this year so i think she had a conflict and so she'll be there next year and that alone is a reason for for me to go having never had a chance to see her and i heard her uh her presentations are, are fantastic, so uh, looking forward to that. And you've mentioned Derek a couple times. Let's clarify that's Derek M. Cook from Monster Kid Radio. Yeah, to spend time with him was very partially educational for just learning podcasting. He had lots of great things to share. Having been on his show, to meet him in person, it just was something that was rewarding because of that experience and, again, just hoping laying groundwork for for future collaborations knowing Derek for 11 years now uh, from his starts of with the uh, Miller zombie podcast and, and being part of that through voicemail and participation and then just following him all these years I, that was probably one of the biggest parts of, of the monster bash weekend was getting a chance to finally meet him and get one of those infamous Derek hugs and just having an opportunity to sit down and talk to him face to face he and I have had conversations over the years, and this was an opportunity to do it face-to-face is fantastic. And, and I 
firmly believe that it'll be happening sooner than later before, you know, that we'll do it again. So, Coincidentally, speaking of Derek, before Monster Bash started the first day, we sat down with him and we actually recorded with him. I It was on uh, this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. And he asked us, what were we looking forward to the most? My answer was meeting Veronica Carlson. I wanted to meet somebody from Hammer Films. I never have. And that so that was my highlight was meeting her. I didn't think she did a panel. I, I learned after the fact that she maybe participated in this reading of, of a, a play or a short play or something. But then I saw a picture on Facebook during a Q&A. So somehow I missed that opportunity to see her. However, I did meet her, got a, a lobby card autographed, a couple of pictures taken. She fondled me all over. <laughs> uh, she, she, you know, when this, I think that's just a, a perfect opportunity to say Monster Bash is so different than some of the other conventions we've gone to. We have Planet Comic Con here in Kansas City, which is, is an incredibly well-run event. It is huge and grows exponentially every year. Tremendous guest list and opportunities to get autographs and such. But you're paying top dollar for the autographs and you're really not going to be getting a lot of one-on-one conversations most of the time. I think there's opportunities if you get at the right point, if there's not a long line. The good thing about Monster Bash was that, A, the, the prices were the lowest I've seen for autographs in probably 15 years at a convention, at least that I've attended. And secondly, that they were all, for the most part, very approachable. And you could have conversations with them or have a moment with them I think that that's, to me, was just part of this family atmosphere that Monster Bash, I've heard about for years and and obviously saw it. There was somebody I was getting into a little back and forth this past uh, week on Facebook who was bad-mouthing Monster Bash. What? uh, Well, you know, it's somebody I don't know, but somebody responding to somebody else, and and they obviously haven't been to Monster Bash for, for a few years, they were bad mouthing it and and saying that they were bringing in uh, Z grade stars and yeah it, it, it the thing is they don't obviously understand what Monster Bash was all about the the guest stars are just kind of the icing on the cake I think there's this whole other atmosphere uh, from a price perspective yeah it's it's incredibly cheap compared to other conventions. The the guests were all incredibly approachable, and as far as the monster community goes, I think especially this year's guest lineup, it was beyond impressive. Let's be honest. A lot of these classic stars are no longer with us, and we're losing them every single year. Would not be surprised if some of the stars that we've seen uh, this past weekend uh, at Monster Bash, we may lose them in the next four to five years. Some of them are definitely they're getting up there in years. At the very least reaching a point where they're not going to be doing conventions anymore. So an opportunity to meet someone like Raku Browning, you know, the last of the Universal Monsters, or somebody, you know, a legendary director like, you know, Bert Ike Gordon, it's priceless in my mind for someone who loves these classic movies to be able to see some of these stars, because obviously we're not going to get a chance to meet Boris Karloff or Bela Lugosi. I mean, they they all passed away long before before I was born, or you know, in some cases, shortly after I was born. You've had an opportunity to meet Vincent Price once, but 
most of these stars long gone before we were old enough to start going to conventions and before conventions really became popular. So I'm going to relish an opportunity to meet somebody like Raku Browning. And it was kind of disheartening, and I, I very quickly excused myself from the conversation. But as obviously they didn't get it. And I think someone who goes to Monster Bash gets it. It's a family. It's a community. And the top A-list stars, there's other conventions for, for that kind of stuff. The stars here are just the icing on the cake. There's a lot of other stuff going on that makes Monster Bash memorable and enjoyable. And I can sort of understand maybe where they're coming from as far as the Z-grade guest. I will admit, I saw the list, and yeah, I wanted to see Ver- Veronica Carlson and Rico Browning. But I was, you know, who's Joe Morrow? Who's Terry Moore? But the thing is, I was just looking at their like horror credentials. I had no idea Terry Moore has done so many movies. She's an Academy Award nominee. She's worked with Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, Elvis... Yes, not horror-related, but this this is old-time Hollywood royalty here, sort of. You know, she was the little girl in Mighty Joe Young. That's who I thought I was going to meet. But to hear these other stories, and that interests me as well. And I think whoever this guy is may not have realized that or is just focusing on the wrong thing because I, I think it was a, a real treat to meet her and, and hear her talk. Well, sometimes I think if you focus on just one particular genre, then yes, they may only have two or three movies within a particular genre. Not everybody's going to be a Karloff, a Lugosi, a Cushing, a Lee with, with a string of movies in, within the horror genre. Uh, they may only have two or three, uh, and that's what we remember from, you know, remember them for, but they, all of these, you know, had long other non-genre related appearances that, you know, and some of which, you know, like Joe Morrow, she, she left acting at one point to take care of family, and uh, she had her, her moment in Hollywood, and as we remember her, primarily for one movie. And sure, maybe not an A-list star, but I think being able to talk to them and you getting to maybe know them a little bit uh, or, or hear stories you know, as they're relaying, you get a bigger picture, and I appreciate that. I, I you know, One of my best experiences, and I had a few when I would go down to Trek Expo uh, in Tulsa, was being able to to have a conversation with George Takei. And we talked about Green Lantern, of all things, but it was a great conversation and an opportunity to talk to somebody. And George Takei is not an A-list star, and in the big scheme of things, being able to to meet and talk with some of these stars, for me, that's that's priceless. And I think that, again, if you're you're saying, well, gosh, this, this person only start in one movie or that that's not an a-list star why you know why should i go to this convention you don't get it you don't understand and monster bash i've I've heard about it for years and once you experience it it's just it's something that you want to go to again and again and finally after making it after all these years this is something that is definitely something that is a priority on my list to attend and it's a beautiful area i mean i'd never been to pennsylvania it's a it's a beautiful area. Going to the Living Dead Cemetery was very pretty. You know, it's it's a nice part of the country, and it was something new that I hadn't been to, and that alone, you know, added to the pleasure of the of the overall experience. An incredibly nice hotel, which is not always the case for these conventions. Um, our local Crypticon Kansas City was at a less than stellar hotel until this year. They're moving to a different location. You know, having been to conventions at hotels, and the hotel is in a rundown facility or very cramped, I think 
the few flaws that had they had with Monster Bash as far as maybe the entryway and stuff far outweighed by the fact that that it was an incredibly nice hotel, very welcoming, comforting to everybody to talk in the courtyard area and close to other restaurants if you wanted to get away within walking distance of other places. So that just adds to, for me to the overall experience and the stars again weren't the reason I went there. Adding to that to someone like me who whose level of being social depends, number one, on what side of the bed he wakes up on and what mood he's in as being very talkative. It's just so conducive. You're not standing in a line. They're not rushing you through to get your autograph and your picture. It's very leisurely. It it opened me up. I was having conversations that I've never had with celebrities before, whether it be starstruck or just the, the cattle call of getting you through for a a picture and an autograph. So I had conversations. Converse, they were just conversations, you know. I that that was really cool. Also mentioning uh, Pittsburgh in the area. I'm surprised you didn't mention Jerry's Records or Ides Entertainment. I would say those are a couple of landmarks of the city that everyone would, should visit. Well, you know, let's 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 talk about the trip then. We you know that was our first stop as we got to Pittsburgh, and and I had heard about. Jerry's records for years from uh, from Vince over at the B Movie Cast. I knew this was some place I needed to attend or go to at least once. Yes, if you're into vinyl and you're in the area, you've got to go to Jerry's Records. You have to have a list with you if you if you're looking for something, because just going in there and perusing the records, you're going to be overwhelmed. There's a million records in that in that store easily i think there's so many nooks and crannies and their jazz room alone was just huge and overwhelming uh i walked out of there with a with a small stack but a nice stack of records it's just a little hole in the wall location that that is run by a gentleman who's been doing it i think by this point for 35 plus years well i will interrupt you and say hole in the wall is what it looks like from the outside <laughs> and you're going to be so proud of me rich I think going in is like going into a TARDIS. I knew you were going <laughs> to go there. Because you go yes. in, it's huge, and it looks bigger than the, the that, front. That is true. Yeah, it, it's it's you walk up this flight of stairs, and then when you turn the corner, it's like yeah, this. Yeah, it is. It's 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 massive. Very impressive uh, selection of records and very good prices. Really good prices. I've been to some record shops where they way overpriced their stuff. This stuff is priced to, to move out. And, you know, there seems like there could be some change of ownership coming. We met Jerry as we walked in. He is having some health problems. Uh, someone indicated at the bash that it's being sold. Uh, I can't imagine they would move it. Uh, that would be a nightmare in itself. I would assume someone's going to come in and, and continue to run it. Definitely well worth stopping. And then uh, Ides Entertainment, again, I've heard about it. You mentioned it. Four stories of just... Anything related from from books to to records to movies to comics, uh, if you're into any of that, uh, it's worth visiting. And I will have to say that I've been to a lot of comic shops. There are comics uh, located in the basement. The the largest selection, clean, reasonably priced, and they had everything. If I would have had more time and more money, I would have been able to fill every gap on my wish list they they just had an amazing selection so that that was our first stop and that was before we even picked up Derek so that was I, I had already uh, helped the local economy immensely <laughs> before we got to the airport 
and I was kind of cautious because I didn't know what we were going to find at Monster Bash. In retrospect, I will say, on one of the levels at Ides, they have books and drawers and drawers full of Monster magazines. Again, sorted, clean, reasonably priced. I didn't go through those knowing I would probably be doing that at, at Monster Bash, but I think just on any given day, they have a better inventory of Monster Magazines uh, than I saw at Monster Bash. Only a couple of vendors there had them. I think, you know, again, yeah, they, they had a very impressive collection of uh, even books, too. They had they had a really great selection of books, nice selection of records, uh, pretty much across the board. At some place, again, um, yeah, high on my priority list, too. When we go back next year to, to go back and revisit, and, and if you're in the area, I highly recommend both of those places. Both of those places are, are definitely worth visiting. So what next? We picked up Derek, met him, went to dinner. We did. We had dinner with him and checked in at the hotel, and easy process, great uh, great facility, and movies were playing when we got there. We uh, kind of peeked in the to the movie room, and I, I can't recall what they were playing when we walked in. I, I, it was a classic. Oh, I'm drawing a blank. I don't drawing, remember either. I'm drawing a blank, but they were playing classic movies all night. Got a chance to kind of see the general layout of the opening area and where the stars were going to be. Uh, got a sneak peek at the vendor room. I think we probably shouldn't have done that, but we did. And uh, first night there, I think we, we were meeting a few people already. Um, Ron Adams, that organizes and runs Monster Bash, also has Creepy Classics, which is a mail-order service. And they had an area set up outside the dealer room, and it it basically was open any time you wanted. So I think that first night we perused that. I'm trying to think who was there that first night. I, I can't recall. They all kind of blended together. I know at one point I, I met Juan there. I don't know if that was Thursday night or, or Friday morning. It may have been Friday morning, but uh, I know in any case there there yeah it was. You could certainly already start diving into the experience Thursday night. And then uh, things real proper started, though, on, on Friday morning with the, what's the, the films we've known and loved or whatever, the little 16-millimeter film presentation. It was a television show from the 1960s. It's an annual kickoff to Monster Bash every year, which was a lot of fun. A little dated, but a lot of fun to watch uh, this 30-minute this TV show talking about horror movies in the 1960s. You know, everything kind of started at that point. They 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 were starting Q and A panels and presentations. The dealer room didn't open up until later, so it's kind of a a, a nice, easy way to kind of segue into the uh, to the event, getting a chance to to meet people as they were coming in. I know that's when filmmaker uh, Christopher R. Mim and Mitch Gonzalez uh, and uh, Steve Sullivan arrived and uh, got and a Mark chance. Hader. Mark Hader, yes, Mark Hader, and got a chance to meet them and. Then the dealer room opened up. and well, So let's backtrack just a minute. Uh, one of the first things they did was show Beginning of the End and have the Burt I. Gordon panel or talk. Yeah. They call them talks. We didn't see the movie. We did go hear the discussion, though. And later on, when we talk about our movie of the month, we'll play some clips and talk a little bit more about uh, Burt I. Gordon. We did get clips from a lot of the Q&As, and we're going to be interspersing that in our conversation here in the first part of the show this month. And then um, if we announced that what our film is for this week, I don't know if we have. We've been kind of going on about Monster Bash. but Yeah, probably not. Uh, our movie this month is The Beginning of the End, 1957. Bird Eye Gordon's uh, 
venture into the giant bug movies. And we're only doing one movie this month because we're talking Monster Bash, but uh, certainly going to tie into the Monster Bash theme because, of course, Spurlight Gordon was there. So that'll be in the latter half of our show. We'll be talking about the beginning of the end. Yeah. So the first panel we're going to talk about, the second one we attended that we're going to talk about now was uh, Rico Browning. And they showed Revenge of the Creature. Again, we didn't watch the movie, but went in towards the tail end to uh, hear the presentation. And what were your thoughts or impressions? What sticks with you from uh, hearing Mr. Browning talk? I had heard that, uh, you know, he's had, of course, he is is certainly uh, the last of the living universal horror monsters. And so uh, I had heard that, you know, he had had some uh, bad health as of late. I actually thought he he looked fantastic. Uh, He seemed to be getting around quite well. I thought he was still uh, very sharp and entertaining and, and certainly was remembering a lot of the details about that time period, which uh, I think, you know, certainly when you're talking about some of these stars and they're getting on in years, you know, we expect them to remember everything, and that's not always going to be the case. And I think of my dad and his memory as he was getting on in years was a bit sketchy at best, and so it's uh, it was certainly nice to, to see that uh, he was doing great. He had been somebody I'd wanted to meet for a long time, Creature from the Black Lagoon is one of my all-time favorites, and so being able to to hear him in the Q&A panel and then meeting him, getting uh, several autographs from him, getting a copy of his uh, movie, Mr. No Legs, which he is a bit embarrassed about, but uh, uh, it is a, uh, a cult classic to say the least. I've never seen it. I've heard about it. Uh, I now have a copy signed by him. Uh, he was just a very, very pleasant gentleman. He was available all weekend long. The Q&A panel, I thought, was was really entertaining. There was a lot of cool insights into the, to the movies and into his experiences in Hollywood. I thought made it really enjoyable. Yeah, he talked a lot about Creature from the Black Lagoon, the costume, the troubles he had wearing the costume. He talked about the underwater choreography. I'll insert now some clips from there. He's going to talk about Creature from the Black Lagoon, the sequel. He almost wasn't in the sequel. We'll hear about that. Uh, And then the the third movie, Creature Walks Among Us, talks a little bit about how the, the costume was different during that. Talks about what it feels like to be a universal monster. So uh, I'll just insert all of that here now. I think we'll we'll say very quickly is that uh, the audio that you're going to be hearing, you'll be able to hear the stars. You might not be able to hear the questions. That was one thing that uh, the audience would ask questions. Sometimes you could hear, sometimes you couldn't, uh, but they didn't have microphones. So you're probably not going to be able to hear their questions, but you'll be hearing his responses. And I think the responses will be pretty indicative of what the question was about. I think you'll be able to tell tell what's uh, being talked about. Yeah, and also just a general disclaimer about the audio. It recorded fairly well. I don't know what I'm going to be able to do with it behind the scenes to make it better, but if there are any soft spots or if you hear crowds or someone cough, that's just part of it. Maybe it'll make you feel like you were there. I played the underwater uh, creature in all three movies. Uh, ben Chapman played the creature in the first movie, Topside. Tom Hennessy played the creature in the movie, in the second one. And Don McGowan was the creature, of course, in the third one. Why two different actors uh, the, for the land creature and the water creature? The reason that I was given, and I think it was correct, uh, they wanted the monster 
five. And then at, at, at that time, I'm a little shorter now, but at that time, I was six feet. Um, the second guy, Tom Hennessy, he was about six four, six five, as well. So they wanted the monster topside to look tall and I was home and uh, I think I was working in Einstein at that time. And uh, I got a call from Jack Arnold, who was the director of the first film. And he said, Rico, we're making another creature movie. He said, would I give me in? I said, oh, great. I said, you want me to come to California and have a suit made? Get ready for it. He says, no, no, we're, we're down at Greenland Studios in St. Augustine, Florida, and we're filming. I said, you're all ready to film it? He said, yeah. I said, well, well where am I going to get a suit? He said, well, they hired some guy, and the first day of shooting, he couldn't swim very well. <laughs> <laughs> Creature that can't swim. He said, so would you mind coming down and, and doing the thing you did in the first film? I said, no, I'll be happy to. So I went down to St. Augustine, Greenland's Studios, and they spent three days cutting the suit down to fit me, because the guy they hired was taller than that way. And they got the suit cut down, and it was fine. And we began filming. We shot at Greenland um, for the whole underwater sequences for the second movie. Because the second suit wasn't made for you, was it more difficult to work with in the underwater scenes than the first suit? No, the, the second suit that they fixed for me worked fine. It, it wasn't uh, as snug as the original suits that I wore, but it, gradually I got to where I was used to, work, you know, how it fit me, and it worked fine. Um, I would go down in the water at Greenland, they had a big anchor, and I would sit on the anchor breathe from the air holes and wait for the rest of the crew to come in to do whatever scene we had rehearsed. And while I was sitting on the anchor, I felt something tugging at my foot. And I couldn't tell what it was, but as I looked back, I could see it was a big, loggerhead turtle. And when he had done, he bit the heel off the foot and shoe off the, uh, the flipper off the board. And he swam away with it. <laughs> Jack Keyman and the other guys came in. They had to chase him down, get the piece of rubber out of his mouth, and then I had to go up and they had to take the foot off and glue the foot back on because it was the last pair I had. And once they glued it back on, we could start shooting the next day. Uh, the vision, uh, the eye, I had the creature suit set about an inch from my eye, and it was like looking through a keyhole. Well, I tried to wear a face mask, and it stuck out too far and made the nose of the creature bulge out. And then I tried to wear goggles, and when I wore the goggles, when they filled with water, I had no way of getting the water out of the cloud. So I went with the naked eye. So in salt water with the naked eye looking through a keyhole, you couldn't see very much. <laughs> so vision was the worst part of, of the suit when I was working with it. I could see an individual, but I couldn't really tell who they were. When we started shooting the underwater scenes at Waco Springs for the first 
first creature movie. They had a director sent down to direct the underwater sequences. And he couldn't swim. <laughs> and he couldn't swim underwater at all. So he'd get in an inner tube with a face mask, and he would look down and watch what he was doing. Well, usually when you swim down, you know, to do what you're going to do, you're gone in a few minutes doing it somewhere else. So he saw very little of what we were doing. The cameraman, Scotty Wilbur, was a pretty sharp guy, and uh, he helped direct the film as well. And I helped him help direct the film. But anyway, on the scene with Julie, we had to swim. Uh, the script calls were swimming after Well, I could only see her if I was upside down. I wouldn't know where she was looking out of the back of my head. So when she was swimming, I would go upside down and get under her so I could see her to swim with her. And it turned out it was a very romantic scene. But basically, I had trouble seeing, and I had to get close to her. So I did. Any discussion of doing any of the creature films in color? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I know it was shot in black and white, and uh, all three movies were shot in 3D. And but I, I don't know whether they considered shooting in color or not. I don't know. What actual color? What what was the actual color of the creature suit? It was green all the way. Same color all the way from the head. There was no lipstick. about changing the appearance of the creature in the third film? Uh, well, he was the same up until the time they operated him. And once they operated on him, then the suit totally changed. And uh, the, the reason for changing it was he had no lungs and he was going to be a land creature. And uh, turns out he didn't work out very well. <laughs> uh, they had been talking about making a, a new creature movie. 20 years. As an Jack Arnold uh, called me about two or three years after the Creature movie was made. And he said, we're going to do a, another Creature movie. He said, how would you like to work with it? I said, sure. And three or four weeks passed, he called back and said, oh, it fell through. And, and then that happened again with Jack Arnold about two or three years later. And then a couple of years later, he was talking about doing it again, and he got ill, and I think he had a bad leg or something, and uh, he gave up making it. So they've talked about it since then for about 20 years, and still haven't done it. What's it like being a universal monster? Well, when we did the movie, it was a job, and when the movie was over, that was it. I went to the movie, I went to the theater in Ocala, Florida, paid my way in, saw the movie, and I enjoyed the movie. I think we did a good job of it. And that was the end of it. And uh, a few years later, I know that I told you this already or not, but a few years later I get a letter somebody wants a picture. And uh, I didn't have any. And so I acquired one picture, 
still have the same picture, and it's one that sells the best. And uh, I started sending those to people. And then over the years, I collected about 200 or so pictures, and I have them on my table now, and uh, we sell them at the show. That's it. Uh, but you weren't, you know, when they had the premiere, you weren't invited to the premiere of the creature? No. <laughs> <laughs> so later that night was a Monster Bash tradition, and Richard was looking forward to it. I don't know if the execution of it was quite what he expected, but why don't you tell us about that, Richard? Well, you know, I've heard about the, the Mexican Horror Night that uh, they've done at the Bash for years, and, and this is a genre of films that I'm very weak in, but I enjoy um, and have uh, learned a lot about it courtesy of Juan over at the B-Movie cast, and I've acquired some films from him in the, in the past, the Santo films, and uh, he had, of course, his selection of uh, DVDs at his table, and I got some more Santo films added to the collection. I really enjoy him, but I am very weak in that genre. So I was looking forward to being able to see a film live and, and uh, get my free taco and, and, and burrito. Or it was I was excited about it. Now, the movie itself, you go into these movies knowing that they're not going to be Academy Award-winning films. You just go with the crazy fun of it. And they showed Samson versus the Vampire Women. Yes, you've got... The gothic vampire sequences and that I thought were actually very well done. Yes, I, I was going to say that. It started out very strong, and I was surprised. The, the makeup of the, the vampire women with the sort of clay-looking stuff on their face, maybe like their face was peeling. Or the, that was great. Went sort of downhill from there. It, it did. You know, this was the dubbed version, and I always prefer to, to watch films in their original language if possible. Of course, they rename Santo, Samson, which we assumed was to try to capitalize on the Gladiator films at that time. Of course, the crowd, when the wrestling matches were going on, they're they're chanting Santo, which seems a bit odd. But you just go with the flow on that. Yeah, you know, you got these odd wrestling sequences, right? They just get thrown in the middle of the movie, and Santo is basically wrestling a vampire in the ring and tears off the mask. Spoiler alert: the movie's a lot of fun. You just you go with it and know that it's just some cheesy fun. I had a lot of fun with it. It's always fun to watch a movie with the crowd, and I think everybody was getting into it. Uh, it had some some moments where the movie dragged, and it was a little warm in there and late at night. Fairly certain we all dozed at one point or another during this film. And, I, you know, was I a little disappointed by the, the taco? Yeah, it was Taco Bell, and it had been sitting in a box for probably several hours. It may have once been a crunchy shell, but it was pretty soggy and soft by the time it got to me. But you know what? It was free, and it went with the... It went with the cheesiness of, of, of the movie, I think. so. Yeah, there's something surreal about people running in with giant boxes of Taco Bell and just almost throwing tacos and burritos at you. It, it was fun. And I bet there were no complaints. I'm sure every taco and burrito was eaten. In fact, there were people in front of us that were there just for that, and as soon as they got them, they left so that it's we true. could have their seats. It's true. So. You know, it's, it's, you know, you're not going to complain about a free... Uh, free burrito at uh what was it 12 30 in the morning when the movie started or was it 11 30 i don't know it was late it was late but it was a lot of fun and i was glad uh glad we attended that and the movie itself not necessarily probably the best of the santo films but certainly uh enjoyable and some really good sequences in it to uh keep you interested with the moments that the film really did drag so that was pretty much day one it was a long day 
It I, was. The next day, pretty much from here on out, it revol- revolved around the dealer room when we could get in there uh, and then watching our, our watches for when uh, there was a panel or something we wanted to see. So I think we started out the next day in the, the dealer room. The first event we went to was the uh, talk with Terry Moore, and they had screened Mighty Joe Young before that, but, but we walked in uh, and listened to Terry. Another thing I noticed uh, about the celebrities, uh, that some of them will go on and on with long stories, like you'll hear that with Bird Eye Gordon. Terry Moore was very short and to the point, uh, so we'll play some clips in a minute. She's going to talk about some of the people she worked with, Adam West, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley. A good story about Howard Hughes. Apparently she was on the extra features for the movie The Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio. So she has a a thought about that and uh, what she thought of the movie The Aviator, seeing as how she really knew Howard Hughes. Uh, And then to cap it off, she's got a a story about Robert Armstrong, uh, who was in Mighty Joe Young, and of course before that, King Kong. So we'll play play those clips here in a minute. Uh, Any comments or anything stick out? With you about Terry Moore? You know, she was very nice. Um, nothing really that, that particularly stood out. Uh, I've always enjoyed Mighty Joe Young. I had forgot that she was in uh, Zodiac Crimes uh, three-parter with Batman, which I actually saw on MeTV not too long ago. So uh, she was very nice. Nice to hear her recollect some of these stories. And that was uh, it was nice to be able to meet, uh, again, a star from one of these classic monster flicks. Oh. Adam West also Adam. Adam was such a good friend of did the only three part Batman and he said uh, put together at least his movie. And uh, I was driving to the house and his wisdom and everything was so helpful to me. I'll never want that anymore. So it's a very special sad thing that he just has a love of Adam. And uh Las Vegas, 
And uh, they said, we'll pick you up in a week. And we, we've arranged for you to sit in front of center for every show. They'll say, and Elvis is dressing all between our shows. And every night, he sang, Are You Lonesome Tonight to my mother, which was her favorite song. Put a scarf around her neck and kissed her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what it was on Elvis. Yeah. Oh, he was so precious. We loved him so much. Blank. The next event they had was they showed Mad Monster Party, and I know we didn't watch that. Did we go to Rick Goldschmidt's panel? We did. We did. We went to his panel. I believe we missed the first part of it, if I remember correctly. There was some timing issues. They said that they were running behind, and then so we got there, and then they looked like they were probably had gotten back on track. So we did miss the first part of it. If you want to know anything about the history of the Rankin Bass specials and movies rick goldschmidt is the man he has produced some amazing books one of which i was going to get and they ran out of i should have got it earlier on it's his uh, basically a uh, a coffee table book on the history of rankin bass i did get an opportunity to pick up some uh, dvds from him the uh, rudolph the red-nosed reindeer the original broadcast presentation with commercials and the original ending in which they do not go back to the island of misfit toys originally uh nice to have that in my collection also the animated uh, mad 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 monsters was available there very enjoyable conversation listening to him talk about he knows a lot a lot about rankin bass uh, and 
it's nice that someone's uh, keeping that that history alive. And I believe we just sat right in there for the next presentation was Joe Morrow. They did not do a screening uh, of one of her movies. Well, she's one that doesn't have a big resume, but uh, 13 Ghosts, William Castle. I think Castle. 13 Ghosts was originally on the list, and then when they added Rick Goldschmidt, they bumped it for uh, Mad Monster Party. Because uh, there's only so much time that you've got in a given month or a given uh, weekend. So I think that was, I, I remember it was originally on the list. And we had spoken with Joe at her table, and she was just uh, delightful. She very outgoing, telling us stories. I, I think she was she was incredibly nice. Um, and again, her prices were incredibly cheap at her table. I think she was underselling, honestly. You know, she's an actress who who is known for a, a small number of things, and Thirteen Ghosts is probably the one thing that is remembered more than anything else. She left acting uh, at a at a at a younger age. To, to take care of some family, and uh, she talked about that in, in her uh, Q&A. She was very, very nice. She was, I think, one of the first stars to leave. She left early Sunday, which is understandable, and the bash is very upfront and honest with that. They, they tell you people will start leaving by early Sunday afternoon to catch planes out, and she was one of the first to leave. Now, the other stars I noticed hung out, I think, for the full weekend, and Veronica And beyond. Carl- <laughs> and beyond. Veronica Carlson was still there. On Monday morning, holding court and and talking, and in, in that Veronica Carlson just immersed herself. I think in the whole weekend, she loves it. Uh, she loves talking to people, and uh, she was she was. I think she was still there when we left. Honestly, on that Monday morning, she was still talking to people. So, uh, nothing against Joe Morrow for leaving early. She was incredibly nice. And I've got just a few clips from her, less than five minutes, where she talks about William Castle working with him and uh, the other cast members of 13 Ghosts, so uh, I'll play that right now. Uh, and, uh, let's open it up for questions. Yes, that's always good. What's on your mind? And be prepared. I'm a little spontaneous. Sometimes people get a little upset because I say what is the truth, and I don't color it. <laughs> Um, he was a dip. Um, you, a lot of people are covert in Hollywood. They say to your face one thing and then do another behind your back, not William Castle. It was to your face every time. You know, he was an honest, straightforward, off the cuff man. And you dealt with him from the top of the deck. And I like that. He was the old son of Hollywood. A lot of the new ones, when I came in, it's a change. Like Harry Conklin's dead. He was one of those, they say, monsters. But he was hard to get along with. Now, Terry was telling me she loved Harry Conklin. I knew have met him. So uh, I would like someone like that. Bill Castle was of that school. The new ones were more like uh, they graduated from school with computer needs. And they weren't the same kind of people. They're covert. They do things underhandedly. They don't tell you the truth. But behind your back, you can hear about the truth. I don't like those people. Your experience, of course, was all good with William Castle. Well, he spread that story around Hollywood because of the situation in the fireplace. He wanted to print a picture of me in the fireplace and two character people. I don't know if it was Charles and someone, but two of the people talking in the foreground. 
and I would be in the state of saying, well, I can't be aimlessly walking around you know, in the film, so what's my motivation? His natural sword flared, and he says, oh, can you move us? Is that motivation enough? <laughs> I said, okay, all right, I'm not there. You know, and I never asked another director what my motivation was. <laughs> the hard way. But he told the story to everyone in Hollywood, and I thought on his case about it. I said, that's not a nice thing to say uh, to people around. And he said, Joe, there isn't any actress in this room who wouldn't want that story told. And he made sense. <laughs> the way he said it to me, I said, oh, oh okay. But he, he was fun to be around, and he was a no-nonsense person. And you give me those people in the experiences I've had going to a convention and attending a panel. Uh, the two gentlemen from How to Make a Monster, Gary Conway, who had also been in uh, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, and Gary Clark, who took over the Michael Landon role in How to Make a Monster as the uh, werewolf. We, we've talked about this movie in a previous podcast, so we don't really need to go into plot, but they were both in How to Make a Monster, and these guys were a hoot. They, they were... We had an indication of what they were going to be like. We got their autographs before their Q&A panel. 
sitting side by side, these two guys are, are bantering back and forth like two grumpy old men, but they're not really grumpy. I mean, they're just they're guys who obviously have known each other for a few years, and so a lot of conversation back and forth between them. Uh, when Gary Clark signed my lobby card after Gary Conway's, his autograph was very legible. Uh, he, he kind of brought me in and said, you know, pointed out how neat his was and then pointed to Gary Conway's and gave him grief for, for writing so sloppily and not to be able to even read what it was, uh, what was written. So it was kind of funny to, to hear them talk. And that was just, uh, they, they turned it up to 11 for their Q&A panel. They were running a little late on the Saturday evening. Uh, it got about a 20-minute 20, 20 start, uh, late start. But then they gave them about 45 minutes, 45 minutes yeah. at least because they were supposed to have 30 minutes. So they just let them go, let them run with it, and which I thought was, was perfect because out of all the panels I've been to in the last 20 years now of going to conventions, 20-plus, I have to say that John Berriman at Planet Comic Con uh, was incredibly enjoyable, and hearing uh, the two Garys talk, I think, is is on par with that. They were amazing, and I think everybody was just talking about it. It was the best Q and A panel I'd ever seen, and and I they they just are two guys that just uh, are clearly enjoying life right now, and uh, to to be able to meet them was was a highlight, and be able to listen to that Q and A was a highlight of the weekend. Yeah, a lot of affection for each other revealed in a lot of comments uh, about each other. I don't we can't play all the clips or this will be a 4-hour podcast. I had almost thought maybe we can do a bonus episode of something where we do play more of these, but I think I'll play the clips where they're talking about being cast in how to make a monster uh, Gary Conway sort of coming in as the the vet uh, whether it's true or not he claims he had some choice in the casting of Gary Clark because he had already played uh, the teenage Frankenstein in the previous movie, so we'll play some of that. We'll talk. Uh, they talk about their scenes together and, and give each other some digs about their acting or lack thereof. They told a lot of other funny stories, and of course, Gary Conway was in Land of the Giants, a big series at the time, and he talks about Irwin Allen. Gary Clark had a great story about working on The Virginian and working with uh, Lee J. Cobb. Gary Clark also was a writer on Get Smart for a, a period of time. He's got a funny story about that. We'll just leave that dangling out there and, and just give you the how to make a monster stuff, but uh, maybe in another episode we can play some of those other clips. Sounds good. You did mention that the resemblance that you had to Michael Landon and, of course, Mr. Conway, uh, that were two, those were the two main reasons that you got the part. And you said, Well, I had to approve the, uh, yeah. the, the other guy. And it took me a long time. Remember how many times you, 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 you did the scenes for me? And it was kind of embarrassing a little bit. Remember? Yeah, but I got. I, I got over it when I saw you act. Teenage Frankenstein. You, you all probably remember how that progressed. 
there was a teenage werewolf, Michael Landon, and there's this, we should say, the monster hit it was. It was a tremendous hit. And then AIP, which was a studio at the time, went through this whole marketing thing they were looking for. I remember the words were the ideal teenager, you know, and they went on this uh, search. I was in UCLA, very searched out. And I don't know, one way or the other, I ended up uh, uh, doing that film. And uh, uh, were all of you around today that we signed a lot of autographs? I may, I may have mentioned that. That uh, when I was cast to do it, I was um, an art student, art major at UCLA, which was a very, very serious art department. And when you went in there, they, the professors who were, some of them were renowned. And they look at you, have to come up and show you work. And when I got uh, this role of I was a teenage Frankenstein, I could just envision later on I would go back to class with my artwork, being very serious about it. And the professor would turn, well, look, we have teenage Frankenstein here today. Let's see what he painted. So believe it or not, you have to be about 17 at the time to have this mentality. So I thought, oh, I can't go through that. And my name was Gareth Carmody, that was my real name. And I thought, maybe I'll change my name. Actors do, it wasn't uncommon, but very common. And I said, that way, they would not connect. So I changed my name to Gareth Conway, so that I wouldn't look so silly at the UCLA Art Department. The only problem was, is that right next to UCLA, there's a theater called the Crest Theater. And uh, one night I was coming home, and there was a crest theater right next to UCLA, and there was this long line around the block. I've never, never seen a line in this theater before. It was more like an art theater. And I had to look up at the marquee and said, I was a teenage Frankenstein, and I knew I'm screwed. And whatever the hell name I had, it was over with. That plan did not work. So I think we hear all these years later, this is so interesting, we're still dealing with I was a TV Frankenstein. And then I'm gonna make a monster. So I still try to put that into some kind of philosophical context. I have not yet arrived at that. <laughs> you mentioned um, and there was and yours was there a a lineup of teenage werewolves where you were on one end and Michael Landon. No, it wasn't teenage werewolves. It was uh, we were in San Francisco doing some event and we were in this big theater and there was a lot of actors from all different kinds of shows. There must have been 30 of us on stage. I was on this end. Michael Landon was on, on this end and we looked like bookends. We looked a lot alike then. And um, so when it came time to do uh, How to Make a Monster, and we found out that Mr. Conway could not do both parts, they had to get uh, somebody to do the werewolf. I still think I could, by the way. He wanted to do Frankenstein and the werewolf. Well, it's two different masks. It's no big deal. I know, but they've done it too. Yeah, but in, it was it was clever the way you tried to work it out to be fighting yourself. <laughs> but you had a good stand-in, who did most of his acting. <laughs>
very well. <laughs> so anyway, it was uh, because I, I think I got the job simply because I looked, if, you're, if you were a distance away and you squinted, I looked a lot like Michael Landon. <laughs> Michael Landon was asking too much. He wanted, I think, 250 bucks a week. Not that much. No. 200? Yes, 200. 200, yeah. So, I, well, I wasn't making big bucks like that. So, um, I'm still waiting for my you check. A <laughs> I was a boss at the roller derby. That's how it yeah. Got this roller derby. Bouncer on skates. <laughs> You're a boss at the roller derby. That's a... Yeah, some of the high-end jobs. Yeah, have to take a lot of training to do that. <laughs> you, also had a, you had to wear a uniform too, by the way. Yeah, I know. So you were adorable in those shiny shorts. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't need the bra, though. I don't know. Why. <laughs> where, where were we? <laughs> when? <laughs> trying to explain how you got the part, but I still don't know. <laughs> In one of the photos on your table, um, uh, there's a scene of you both grasping at each other, but there was no fight between you two in the movie. So had there been a, a fight? Actually, it was not fight, it was groping. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't getting paid, I took what I could get. by the table and seen that you're grabbing me and towering over me. They took another picture where I was winning. <laughs> you don't see that. <laughs> Censorship. <laughs> 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 Would you gentlemen like some questions from the audience? No. <laughs> This is why we talk to these people at the table, and we know. All right. Gary will answer anything you have to ask. I'll answer your questions addressed to you. Because then it'll be the truth. Oh, I can see Okay, so can we have some questions? All right, starting right here. We've heard that question. Next. Answer the question. You what? Oh, I can go back a couple of stories. 
be together in a perfect relationship Well, so much for the questions. <laughs> So they didn't show how to make a monster before the two Garys, but later on that night they did show it, and that was a very unique and entertaining venue. Uh, tell us about that, Richard. Well, they, they have done a uh, outside drive-in theater basically for years, and the weather cooperated. Very rainy on that Friday, but beautiful weather that Saturday night. And they uh, set up a screen out in the uh, grassy knoll outside of uh, the hotel and uh, played uh, probably, I think, about 10 or 15 minutes of trailers before the movie started. Um, all 16-millimeter uh, uh, film presentation. And uh, we packed a couple chairs for the trip. So basically just sitting out in the lawn watching a, a drive-in movie on a Saturday night with, uh, with friends and fantastic weather. And uh, even though we had just seen the movie a few months ago, I found it really enjoyable. It was, it was, uh, I thought it was a great, uh, great presentation, and it was a lot of fun. Absolutely. So that was about it for. Oh no! We, when did we have cake? Was cake before that? We had cake before that. Huge sheet cakes, and and uh, for as large as the crowd was, they were getting people in and out in record time. And uh, we had the the prize toss that night at midnight. Oh yeah. That was uh, after the movie. It was after the movie. Uh, they were doing a, uh, which I didn't get a chance to catch all of it because, again, the timing, things, some things overlap, but they were doing a episode of the classic uh, old-time radio show Lights Out, playing that in the uh, in the room. And then, of course, it was the, the Festival of the New Wine song from Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, uh, which is tradition. That was a lot of fun. And then it was the prize toss. And I got to say... They had a very large selection of prizes, and they were giving out some really good stuff. I did not expect Blu-rays and DVDs to be given out, and that they were giving them out. And as the disclaimer says, don't want anybody to get hurt because they were throwing this stuff out to the crowd. And I did get hit in the shoulder, but it was well worth it because I got a Hammer Blu-ray double feature, Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll and the Gorgon, which I have on DVD and I think VHS. But not Blu-ray, so that was an awesome gift. And well, I got the Blu-ray of the uh, Diamond Gin trilogy from Mill Creek, so that was, it was a plus for you because you get my DVD copies. I got the <laughs> Blu-ray copies. Everybody won. Yeah, and I got uh, I think I had something else that I gave away to somebody that I already had. But yeah, I got several prizes. That was a lot of fun. That was a great way to to uh, to end the night. They were doing Night of the Living Dead after that, and John Russo was going to be there for a Q&A, but we were pretty much spent at that point, and we decided sleep was, was more important. And that wrapped up day two. I don't know if we'll talk about it, but I'll mention it. I really lucked out on, on the prizes. Scream Magazine had a table, and if you bought their most recent issue, which I did, it has uh, Alien Covenant on the cover, although they had a uh, variant cover, I guess, that was a John Waters tribute. Anyway, um... You got to pick a number, and they would go into the prize bag. And I got the Blu-ray of Dr. Her Terror's House of Horrors, which is a fantastic. I already had it, so I gave it to my friend Richard. Did you get any other free stuff, or, or, or was that about it for well, prizes? I, I, I got a, a, that same uh, 
same booth kind of, and got the magazine. And mine was a Blu-ray release of uh, Vincent Price's The Bat, which was nice. It's, it's a free movie. You can't complain about it. That was a nice little thing they were doing. I'm trying to remember. Um, yeah, there were a lot of great vendors there. Um, I acquired a very large stack of movies. Anyone who knows me, that's not a big shock. Uh, a nice selection of Mexican horror flicks and stuff. And I know that if we're talking very briefly about the vendors' room, one of the coolest things I know that I got was a uh, an album. We'll call it an album. The uh, Cry of the Banshee soundtrack of uh, the classic Vincent Price movie uh, with music by uh, Les Baxter. I mean, it, it's you can't beat that. I've never seen it. Uh, it's an amazing near mint quality. Of all, all the cool stuff I got, that's probably one of the coolest things I got at the vendor. And in addition to some very rare movies and and uh, nice stuff, and I know you got a, a nice uh, pair of action figures. Yeah, but you, you've made me a, a little sad because now I'm thinking of things of missed opportunities. In the same box, a couple albums behind that was the uh, soundtrack to the Abominable Doctor Five. Great condition, well worth seventy five dollars. But I just passed on it, and of course now I think how nice it would have been to have that. But I I was expecting a lot of little things, spending money, filling in back issues on Monster Magazines. Like I said earlier, not so much of that. I got a couple issues, but instead I invested in two high-dollar items for this type of thing. And one was a, a two-pack of distinctive dummies. Those are the action figures from somewhere overseas. They make a limited number. They're unlicensed but their Hammer stars, Vincent Price, characters from those movies, really, really cool. So I got a two-pack from Curse of Frankenstein that has Peter Cushing as Frankenstein and Christopher Lee as the creature. Love that. And then my second thing was I got a movie poster original from House of Dark Shadows. I don't know what they call that, if it's a quad or what. It's a horizontal poster. They had a a regular one-sheet, this one, and then a tall narrow one and so my dilemma was not should i buy it or not it's which one should i buy and i thought this horizontal one would be a little unique and it'll look really good framed so those are my two big ticket items yeah you're always going to have those items that you you think about after the cons like boy i wish i would have got that you know and and there was there's a lot there and uh, they had, uh, and I don't know the company, but I know they've been there for years. They're doing the shadow boxes with the action figures. Uh, Is that your missed opportunity? I, or? I, I probably, you know, I'm still thinking. I, I, I had an opportunity that had an incredibly cool Phantom of the Opera one there, but it was expensive. On one hand, I'm glad I didn't spend more money, but on the other hand... That's a pretty unique item, and so I think uh, you're going to have that. You're going to walk away and say, boy, I wish I'd have done that. But I, I would agree, there wasn't a lot of as many monster mags as I thought, so I think this gives us an idea for next year. We know that if that's the kind of stuff you you know you want, then you know, Ides Entertainment is going to be the place for that. And I think you know filling in back issues on, on uh, some of the monster horror titles that I get of comics, you know, that was a place I'm going to go, uh, not necessarily a convention. The convention, I, I think, is, for me, you know, you get a feel for the vendors. Now I know what to expect. Exactly. And I know I'm going to walk away with a stack of DVDs. Right? I got some great books. I got a couple from uh, author Dwight Kemper, who's a frequent guest star over there at Monster Kid Radio. Finally got a chance to meet Nick Brown and uh, his lovely wife, Fiona, from the B-Movie cast, and got their B-Movie cookbook, 
as well as finally getting his two uh, werewolf books that he's been talking about for years. So, And, of course, you know, I know a lot of people. Uh, Christopher Mim did a lot of great business at his booth. Basically, believe he sold about two-thirds of his, of his stock. So he said he came in here with three boxes. He walked away with one. So a lot of people got their movies, uh, you know, got his movies. And so that's... There's a lot of lot of vendors there, and as with anything, some are going to be better than others. But there was a lot of good monster stuff to choose from, and, and sometimes you just have to you have to tighten that wallet and walk away because you need to eat. And right now, I'm eating water sandwiches for the next couple of weeks, but I, all worth it, all worth it. You mentioned some more names. You know, I, I'm not going to be able to sit here and tell say everyone we met. I hope we're not neglecting anyone. Ken Blows was another one. We actually had yes. dinner Sunday night after. It was a pleasure to meet him. He's he's very responsive online to, to Monster Kid Radio and has said some nice things about the podcast. So I, I know there's others. Believe me, it was wonderful meeting you, and I'm sorry that I can't remember at this moment your names. Yeah, there, there was there's a lot of people. I'm you know a lot of people I know that have, have listened to me over the years and walked up to me and and uh, I've mentioned a few of them on the show. So yeah, thank you absolutely for and a lot of people said some very nice things about our podcast. We're uh, went seven episodes in with this one, and so we're still new, we're still learning, but we've heard a lot of good things. And I think more than one person said, "Gosh, do more than one episode a month." So uh, thank you, thank you for your support, thank you for. For, uh, for reaching out at the convention. I, I asked that and when I went online. Come up and introduce yourself. And that's exactly what people did, and I'm thankful for that. So Sunday morning we got up. You mentioned we went to the cemetery, uh, Evans City Cemetery from Night of the Living Dead. You can't not do that. It's only 10 miles away from, from the convention. So that was something we had to do. And bless his heart, Richard and uh, Jonathan... I did the same thing when I've been to, I had been to the mall from Dawn of the Dead on a previous trip to Pittsburgh. It's, the question is if the mall is even still standing, but regardless, it's not, the museum that used to be there, they've moved near the cemetery. But when I went there, when I went to the movie theater where they filmed The Blob, I'm painstakingly trying to recreate scenes from the movies with the exact angles and with people in position that were they were in in the movie, so... Jonathan and Richard were very kind to me as we tried to recreate that. We got some good pictures out of that. Cool experience, um, especially for a movie like Night of the Living Dead. That's so, uh, such a classic. I think, you know, it was interesting to try to recreate, you know, certain shots and see where they, you know, camera angles and stuff. I think one thing we determined is that uh, where the car is rolling down and kind of t- curving around that road when the car hits the tree, it is not the same road because there's there's a huge drop off off the side of the road, uh, and so they they clearly would have had to have moved and, and taken it probably a little higher up in the hill. Kind of cool to see little things like that and try to. Of course, decades have passed, right? So a lot of the foliage has changed and trees are 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 here that weren't there and vice versa. So that was a lot of fun. And we met someone there at the cemetery, a local who had never been. He was there with his uh, niece and he kind of helped uh fill in some some information for us as well. And that was that was very nice. And then uh of course it, uh you and I were there with Jonathan and and we went on to the Living Dead Museum. $5, nice little experience. Uh, I think reasonably priced, and uh, of course, there's a nice gift shop with a few selections. And hey, here's a shocker: I bought a DVD. They had a they had a documentary that that was there, and I had to get that. Um, 
very a lot of cool displays again in a small amount of space but they had um george a romero uh version of the zombie experience very well represented paying homage to the birth of the zombies recognizing uh plan nine from outer space and white zombie with bell lugosi and uh got it even throwing in a little bit of michael jackson it was uh it was it was very nice. I think that was a, a fun little diversion. There wasn't a lot going on at the convention that we were missing out on, so the timing was good for us and what we were interested in. And we got back in time to to see Theseus and the Minotaur getting its uh, world premiere. Yes, from filmmaker Joshua Kennedy, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, stop motion, and I, it's Ryan somebody I can't remember his last name that did the. The stop motion, uh, longer than his previous movies. This is like a full-length movie. Usually in the past, I think his films have been closer to an hour. Uh, I think it shows a lot of development of him as a filmmaker. So and tremendous use of colors, I thought. And, and uh, you're going for a genre of films that have been kind of long since forgotten. I mean, in the 1960s, we had a lot of these... I don't even, you know, sword and sandal genre, kind of, I guess, you know, throwing in the the uh, supernatural element. And really, in the last several decades, I mean, probably Clash of the Titans in, what, 81, was it? Was probably the end of that genre. And, and we had, what, a couple Clash of the Titans movies, Clash and Wrath of the Titans, in recent years that really didn't revive the genre. So kind of a, a bold effort from him and and what we saw was a work print essentially there's there's still some sequences to be added and some things to be done but we got a chance to see an early uh print of it and uh i know that veronica carlson was present and uh joshua kennedy was amazing in his role highlight of the film and uh veronica carlson mentioned that as well when she was asked so uh when that becomes available if you've never seen one of his films you know he is a low budget a filmmaker who is just essentially doing homages to the classic films in a, in a different way than, than Christopher Mim is doing. These two filmmakers had an opportunity to meet. There's no animosity between them. They are making similar yet different films. Our, our friend uh, Stephen D. Sullivan had his hand in some of the writing for the movie as well. So when it becomes available, check it out. Uh, that was That was a fun... Uh, kind of last gasp for us. That was the last thing we did, really. We didn't do a lot on Sunday. I think we, we made one more round and spent a little more money in, in the dealer's room and just kind of spent some time talking to the people. People were beginning to leave. People were, you know, certainly heading out at the end of the convention to get back on the road. So it was nice to to uh, say goodbye to people one more time and, and have dinner again with a group of people on Sunday night before uh before the whole weekend was over and uh before we made the uh incredibly long 13 hours seven for me seven state trek home on uh, on monday the one thing we didn't get to see was the flying saucer in mars and did you see this week somebody did go i yes. saw the picture was that barry uh no that oh. was somebody else somebody else i think i don't think barry made it there um Barry Harding is another person we met. Give a shout out to Barry Harding. I think he was one of the first people we met that Thursday night. And it's I know it's moved to different locations. I don't know where it was at. Uh, it wasn't where we were driving, um, and we had totally forgot about it until I think we were maybe a couple states away. I think, or maybe we were 
leaving Pennsylvania at that point, it was like, well, time to go. We just didn't have time to see it. Add that to the list to do in 2018. Exactly. So to kind of bring it full circle, the Monster Bash experience, we started out basically talking a little bit about Bird Eye Gordon. My last memory of Monster Bash was as we were leaving the dealer room, basically being kicked out. I saw Bert and his daughter standing, taking a picture. She was taking a picture of him by the Monster Bash entry sign. And I asked if I could take a picture of them both. And she said, yes, thank you. So that was kind of cool a, a cool way to wrap up um, that little personal interaction. And you know what? Uh, we've gone on way over an hour about Monster Bash, which is great. I think I'm going to go ahead and play the Burt I. Gordon clips so that we wrap that up. And then when we come back and we talk about the movie, we can just talk about that. Sounds like a plan. All right. So he, Bert's going to talk about how he's got his start making movies. There are a couple things he said that I'm just going to repeat because they're so short. Stick your finger in your ear and not hear them. But uh, somebody asked him what his favorite movie of his was, and he said all of them. That was kind of his response to a lot of questions. Who was the favorite uh, star starlet that you worked with? All of them. Uh, that was kind of a canned response. I, I think, you know, we have to acknowledge that, you know... He was he he was obviously not being able to remember some of these key details, which is common again. I think when you're talking with somebody who's getting into their you know 80s or 90s, they're not going to remember all of the details from these movies that we sit and watch all the time. This is something that they did decades ago, and that that's nothing against against him. He was an incredibly nice gentleman um, who just couldn't remember all the little minor details about these films that he made, other than. You know, he's still very fond of them and uh, very fond of all the people who remember his movies. He was an incredibly nice gentleman. Yep. So uh, I'll just play a little bit of that. Then I am going to play a longer segment where he actually talks about beginning of the end, some of the challenges he had with the special effects on that, uh, and then wrap it up with a, a comment he made about the food of the gods and working with uh, rats. We'll play that, and then we will come back and talk about the beginning of the end. I started at nine years old making movies. Uh, my aunt gave me a movie camera and I made movies with neighborhood kids. And um, that's all I wanted to do was make movies. And as I grew up, I, um, at the University of Wisconsin, I, I had a newsreel of all the activities. And finally, I got to um, Hollywood. No, I, first of all, I started making independent films. And, uh, um, and then finally, I decided I had to go to Hollywood. It took me about um, eight months in Hollywood, knocking on doors, trying to get in, get, to be able to make a movie. And uh, so, I had one friend that I made in Hollywood who had a, um, uh, a shop that made the titles for the movies. And he asked me uh, one day, uh, Bert, do you have the, uh, a movie camera that you brought from Minnesota when you came here? A 16 millimeter? And I said, yeah, it's 16 millimeter, all right. He said, um, uh, could you bring it because we have a man who needs titles for the 16 millimeter movie? 
uh, you know, for his movie, I said that uh, it, uh, at 16 millimeter, he said, no problem, which is blow it up. So the next day, I was walking down the hall with the camera, and the man walked up to me and he said, oh, is that theater performance you have? He said, how would you like to make a movie? I said, man, of course I'd like to make a movie. But this is 16 millimeter. He said, no problem, but blow it up. <laughs> and that's how I started making my first movie with a 16 millimeter blown up. And I can see myself right now outside of a theater with a movie. Well, yeah, there are so many and so on. But here is an interesting situation with some of the animals that I work with. Thank you. 
gradually, as they understood that the food was down the term, they were perfect. It was just action. Great. Okay. Tomorrow we start shooting it. So the next day, put the grasshoppers in there. Okay. Okay. Action. Roll the camera. Action. They raised the the, the, um, the gate. It wouldn't come out. <laughs> then come out. And I trained them. We worked for days and days and days. And they wouldn't come out. See what we, you know the, what the scene's going to be done. And then I'll, I'll mat it together together with a, a scene of the big people, and it'll be perfect. But they wouldn't come out. So after half a day trying, growing up. Okay, everybody go home today. So I went home, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what the hell, what the hell, what the hell? And then an idea came to me. The next day, grasshoppers in there, everything ready. Roll the camera. This is, this is not with people. Rolling thing, and they would and put a little little cheese right in front of it. In other words, we went through the whole training process. This time, using the camera noise, no no film in the camera, nothing. Cheese, a little more cheese, and finally, after retraining them with the sound of the camera, that beautiful stuff. And that's it. That was one of my favorite movies. I like making that movie. Uh, after we shot with the people, then we um, had miniature sets for the, um, the rats. We shot them with, with uh, uh, guns that shot uh, jelly. They didn't kill them, but knocked them over. <laughs> <laughs> and, and right in the beginning, after we after we finished filming the grown-up live actors, and we're going to get set now to shoot shoot the miniature rats. Um, the actor said, can I ask a favor? And I said, sure. Said, can I do the shooting? <laughs> so he, he did the all the pellet shooting. <laughs> We 
we may be witnessing the beginning of an era that will mean the complete annihilation of man. Annihilation? The beginning of the end. A menace so massive, so overwhelming, that thousands upon thousands are propelled into senseless terror. Panic takes the place of planned evacuation, and whole cities are paralyzed by fear. The Air Force is standing by with an atom bomb. You can't drop an atom bomb on Chicago. movie this month is The Beginning of the End from 1957, produced and directed by Bert I. Gordon. Investigating the destruction of the entire town of Ludlow, Illinois, Audrey Ames, a reporter from the National Wire Service, meets Ed Wainwright, a scientist from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Together, they discover that grasshoppers have been eaten experimental radioactive food and have grown to giant size. While the military prepares drastic measures to stop the swarm from annihilating Chicago, Wainwright races against time to safely lure them away from the city. So, I have mixed feelings about the beginning of the end. What did you think about it, Richard? Well, you know, the beginning of the end came out in 57, and it's it's part of the, the 1950s sci-fi big bug, radiation is bad cycle of films in which there are good films and there are bad films. Them is a classic. It's the best of the best. And uh, although I'm sure there are plot holes and, and problems in them, it's been a while since I revisited that movie. You know, there's not, there were good special effects in that film. I thought it was a good script and you had some believability in, in how they dealt with the ants. In comparison, some of the other movies that kind of fall in this genre, films like Tarantula, The Black Scorpion, Deadly Mantis, I think even, you know, Giant Gila Monster could be thrown into that, uh, Monster from Green Hell. Some of these films, there's, there's, there's good, there's bad, special effects come into play, and that's where the beginning of the end had some big, giant plot holes for me, and some really kind of cheesy special effects that unfortunately kind of deter kind of pull you out of the moment a little bit you know that these movies are going to get some of that but for me there were there was there was definitely some 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 of the big plot holes i thought that we'll talk about in a second but that that was probably for me there was some things i'm like how was this happening and how could they not know this that kind of threw me out of the moment uh, I didn't hate it. Yeah, I, I don't think it was the worst. It just it wasn't very good. And you talk about the other bug movies, so let's kind of put this in the timeline. Uh, and actually, I've read in my research that this movie, I don't know if I believe it, is more a response to not a giant insect movie, but to The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms that came out in 53. That was supposedly what Burt I. Gordon was trying to to make 
hard to believe because between that and the next four years, them was 54, Tarantula was 55, Deadly Mantis was the same year, but it came out the month before beginning of the end. Well, and I read that he was inspired to do this movie by seeing the biblical plague of locusts that was in the Ten Commandments right. in 1956. Right. So I don't know... So it, what what of that is real and what isn't and what's just rumor at this point? Right. So it, that subgenre was brewing at that time. It, it's hard to look at that timeline and think that he was a pioneer in that subgenre. I don't think you can say that. You know, it just kind of falls in the middle. There were, were a ton after that: Black Scorpion, Earth versus the Spider, Attack of the Giant Leashes, Wasp, Wasp Woman. You know, this is in the middle, and that's you know pretty much how the movie is. It's just sort of in the middle. It's not one of the best, and it's certainly not one of the worst. It it benefits from having, um, I think, a good cast. Uh, I always love Peter Graves, and Peter Graves plays the lead role of Dr. Ed Wainwright. By this point, he had done several films, Red Planet Mars, Killers from Space, It Conquered the World, and, and he's always kind of playing the same part in these films. I think he even played a doctor in, I want to say, It Conquered the World. He's a nice leading guy, and, and, you know, he did, of course, did a lot of other things that people remember him for, Mission Impossible, uh, one of my all-time favorite made-for-television movies, Where Have All the People Gone in 74. Uh, it's interesting, though, is that there are there's a whole other genre of people that just remember him from the airplane movies and, and the more comedic roles that he had at, towards the end of his career. He died in, in 2010 at the age of 83, lived a nice long life, got an impressive uh, filmography. But this, this 1950s cycle of sci-fi movies, for me, it's always fun to see him pop up. And his presence enhanced the movie, I think. What about uh, the woman, though, that played Audrey Ames from the National Wire Service? I didn't think she was that great. She was not. Peggy Castle, she was not a great lead actress. She had done a movie before this called Invasion USA, which is an interesting film about... With uh, Chuck Norris? No, not the Chuck Norris oh, one. Okay. No, no. I'd seen this once before. It, it had to do with the, with the U.S. being invaded, and it's it's kind of a bizarre <laughs> flick and, and a little dated, but it's fun. She did a lot of TV work, a lot of B-Westerns. A sad ending, though, to her career. She died in 73 at the age of 45 from cirrhosis of the liver just months after her husband died basically drank herself to death. Hmm. Her career did not end very well, and her life didn't end very well. She was not a great lead actress, and I had problems with her character as it was written. She's supposedly this uh, world-renowned photographer who you get this impression that she's daring, she she goes into all these hard-to-find places, and she very quickly falls into damsel in distress mode in this film. She's very much trying to get the pictures and trying to be at the forefront and get this story. And then kind of once she meets Dr. Ed Wainwright, she kind of is playing second fiddle to him. And then she stays and she doesn't, I don't think she even screamed in the movie necessarily. But well, that's what I was going to say. I don't get the same impression. What? Yes, she doesn't take as big a part, but how how did you feel she played the damsel in distress? Well, I think she was she never just, in any danger particular. No, not area. danger particular. Maybe damsel in distress is not the right terminology. But it seemed like once once she met Ed Wainwright, she she clearly kind of took second fiddle to him. She right. kind of you know, she she wasn't uh I mean she stayed, you know, with him when when he said you need to get out of the city, but 
I don't know. I just I, she didn't come across to me as once she got into this scenario, she didn't come across to me as someone who was going to to try to get the story at all costs. You know, she. I think in a, in a modern day movie, there'd be scenes of her running off trying to get pictures of the grasshoppers, or or going out in the city and then kind of falling into damsel in distress mode, maybe and needing help. We didn't get that in this movie, uh, and I don't know. Just I, again, I, it was a weaker performance. Maybe that's my perception. Is this like she didn't seem like a very strong character when she should have been, based on how her character was originally written, the description of the character. I didn't really see this this dynamic photographer once she had her camera taken away from her by the the security guard. It was she just it's like that neutered her totally, and she just didn't really uh, fight for the story at that point. Yeah, now that you say that, I can see that, and I think I know why I didn't really see it that way. So I thought the movie started out really pretty good. I mean, the uh, the love couple in lovers lane that get you know, smashed and eaten, I guess, by the giant grasshoppers, which we don't see. So there's mystery. And in this movie, what we don't see is far better than what we do see. But the aftermath of that, the car that was crushed, that looked really good. For a long time, we don't see the actual grasshoppers. We just see the their effects and people talking about them. So it, and, and we didn't know where they had come from. And so there was mystery building. It, it was intriguing. About halfway through, though, it just, stuck, for me, started going downhill. And I think that was probably about the time that you're talking about. And so it wasn't so much that her performance or her character flaws were bothering me. It's just that I was losing interest in the entire movie. I think, it, I think that has to do with, with the, the script. Unfortunately, I think it, it, the latter half of the film suffered. I think that, uh, you had the usual, right? They, once, uh, once they discover the grasshoppers are behind it, they go to the military. Hey, no, we don't believe you. You know why? Why would we believe you? You know you're just a reporter and a scientist. And then uh, Ed Wainwright and uh, Audrey go to Washington and say this is what's happening, and you're not going to be able to, to defeat them very easily. They just very easily dismiss them. And then before they leave the room, there's a phone call, and well, hey, the military just got wiped out, and then all of a sudden it's like, all right, we'll put you in charge. I don't know. To me. That was a point where it just kind of, they started throwing in a lot of stock footage of military uh, actions that really didn't necessarily go with what we're seeing on the screen. And there's some of the battle sequences, it suffered because of the of the way the, the grasshoppers were, the visual effects of the grasshoppers, because they were transparent at times. It was split screen, rear projection, which sometimes works in these movies, it didn't work as well in this one. I thought some of the the facial reactions from from the people as they're getting trampled by the the grasshoppers looked really fake, really bad, and it laughable. Unfortunately, and I was like, the the danger of the grasshoppers is diminished when you're seeing somebody pretending to fall back and just not very convincingly, unfortunately. And, and I don't know who was to blame for that, but the the end result, I think, again, played a big part in why this movie didn't have the lasting impact that a movie like them did. So you talk about the script, and again, I didn't quite get that I thought it maybe wasn't as good a script as you did. I thought that some of the dialogue was pretty clever, and uh, and 
especially with the military and I guess civilian reaction that you're talking about. You're a scientist. You know what locusts can do. I'm a general. I know what guns can do. Yeah. I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, and there was some dialogue like that. And I think overall, the sort of conflict between the, the extreme military reaction and smart scientist way to do it, I, I thought that was pretty compelling. I don't think, to me, the, the script isn't one of its big weaknesses. And let's say who it's written by, by, by the way, is not written by Bert I. Gordon. This was Gordon's second movie after King Dinosaur. After this, I think he wrote all of his movies, but this was actually a script from from two other people, a man named Fred Freiberger, who actually wrote Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. He's uh, actually well-known, actually. Oh, yes. uh, he He was one of the producers in the last season of Star Trek. He did a lot of producing work uh, in addition to his writing work, but he produced episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man. I believe, I don't know if it was the first or second season, but an entire season of Space 1999, Beyond Westworld, uh, all probably six episodes of that series. He wrote a lot of television as well, but I recognize the name right away as as being one of the producers from the last season of Star Trek. So hmm. um, he did a lot of producing work uh, in addition to his writing. The other one, of course, Lester Gorn. Yeah, this is the only thing he he did. So, which makes me think if this is this like a, a pseudonym for somebody else, or and I'm going to impress you twice in this episode, Leslie Gorn, <laughs> Gorn, yes. Star Trek. Are you proud of me? I'm I ready. am proud of you. Maybe Fred got the Gorn a job. I there know, you this go. Is about ten years early, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe. The Gorn got the job on Star Trek, you know, that's, he had been out of work for 10 years, who knows. Another line of dialogue I liked was, you can't drop an atom bomb on Chicago, and the general or whoever says, Washington has given me authority to do just that. Yeah, it's kind of, they, they escalated very quickly, didn't they? It's like, they're, they're trying to stop, it's like, well, you know what, let's just drop a bomb on the whole city and just blow it sky high, that'll do it. Uh, and, and then on the other hand, a, an example of particularly poor dialogue was at the end. And there, there's a part at the end where it, they're right in the middle. They're, they're about to go. He's got the sound ready to lure them, but the military doesn't want to pull off yet. There's a timing issue. And Peter Graves says, you know, I'd really like to go ahead and start this now. And the military says, no, we can't do that yet. And he says, but I really want to start it now. Okay, something like that. I, I can't find the quote. That was a little silly. Well, I want to I recognize then the, the, the character of General John Hansen, played by a Morris Ankrum, character actor, who has played, he played a lot of military roles in, in movies. I was looking at, like, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, Invaders on Mars. He's, he's always this general type in the films. He was a judge on Perry Mason for a lot of years as well. You know, talking about Peggy Castle's very untimely death, he had kind of an odd death as well. Died at the age of 67 of trichinosis in 1964. I had not heard of trichinosis. I Google it. It has to do with worms. Oh. Um, and and basically a, a very unpleasant end. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details, but very sad uh, mm. that he would pass away at the, at, again, a young age of 67. But... Uh, a recognizable actor. I recognized him, and it's just, I've seen him in other films and TV appearances and such. He's always in some type of authoritative role. So uh, I, I thought he did a, a good job in that role as, as General Hansen. And, and this was a problem I had with the movie. There was a, a colonel, a general, and a captain, I think. And I couldn't 
keep them straight. They were pretty generic and interchangeable. Yeah, and they were. I, I wasn't really sure who was calling the shots. I mean, at the beginning, she goes to speak to the captain. and so I This know. is where I go back to where there, there's weaknesses in the script. And here's some of the things, the, the, the plot holes that I was talking about. Yeah, they're talking about, like, there's 300 grasshoppers, and then there's thousands of grasshoppers, and, I mean, the number is somehow changing exponentially, and I didn't know that grasshoppers were like rabbits and bred like tribbles. I didn't know that. And the thing is, you've got a herd of grasshoppers coming to Chicago. They're wiping out, you know, uh, all these all these places that are close to Chicago. Yet, when they finally do reach Chicago, it's almost like, Oh, oh, oh gosh, they're here already. First off, wouldn't you hear them? Wouldn't you see them? And why are people still out in public holding picnics when there's a herd of 300-plus grasshoppers coming your way? My butt's going to be, I don't know, out of town, in a shelter, in the basement, which the TV reporter says, go to your basements. Shouldn't they have been there already when this herd is coming their way? And that that reminds me of when we talked about Amazing Colossal Man, they could not locate the giant that was rampaging across the country. How can you miss them? How right, can you miss exactly. this herd? I don't get it. There's the inconsistency, of course, they talk about the screeches, right? Right before they attack. Yet, at the beginning of the movie, when we see the teenagers, there's no screeching sound. She looks up and is surprised that there's apparently which we later find out, is a grasshopper staring at her. Now, I get it. I think they could have done the screeching sound, but that kind of would have given it away, I guess, maybe a little early. Maybe that's the reason why they didn't do that. But it becomes an inconsistency once they reveal that later on in the the movie. And also, it becomes a point when they say the grasshoppers kind of go into a state of dormancy when temperature goes below 68 degrees. Yet, at the beginning of the movie... The town of Ludlow is destroyed overnight. Shouldn't the grasshoppers have been less active at night? Why would they have gotten so agitated and wiped out an entire town at night when later on in the movie they're basically sleeping at night? It's those little things like that that I know where you're supposed to overlook in these movies, and, and normally I overlook a lot of this stuff, but maybe in this movie, for whatever reason, my mind was thinking analytically, and I'm like, eh, these are some things that just don't make sense to me, and, and why... I don't know. I, I still think that, that, that there is some weakness in the script, and, and I don't know, you know, maybe it was just in the overall production, but I do think that's that plays a big part for me, at least, and why at the beginning of the end, while I still had fun with it, and I always do with these movies, it's definitely on the, the lesser end of the big giant bug movies and, and doesn't hold a candle to some of the others, in particular them, which, again, set the, set the bar pretty high, but I, I think that the script for me it plays a big part of why I think we could have and the special effects, you gotta get past that. It's they're pretty cheap special effects compared to some of the other films that we've seen in the genre. Yeah. So again what is spoken is is much more scary, rewarding than when you actually see it. I mean they talk about, you know, they have the strength of ten men and there are two hundred of them and they have jaws with razor sharp teeth, you know, that paints such a, a horrifying picture and then you see a little grasshopper hopping along. It just, uh, the, the words don't match the, the visuals. And I do have a, a problem also with this massive swarm, herd, whatever, of, of grasshoppers. And then you only see at the most, what, five or six? It's Yeah. Well, and some of that, I think, was because of, of the problem they had with the grasshoppers. The grasshoppers 
basically are cannibals. If they're in a, uh, a confined space and they need food, they start eating themselves, essentially. And so, you know, Bert I. Gordon talked about this, that he had a lot of grasshoppers and had problems with them, and basically they started eating themselves so that by the time filming started, there was only... There were only five or six of them left. Five or six left, maybe a dozen of of, those. I think 200 is what they brought into the country. And so that is probably a big reason why we didn't see this giant herd of grasshoppers. I think he probably had a vision, and then the end result didn't quite come across when you've got only five or six grasshoppers that you got to use, and a lot of the same shots were used at multiple times. Yeah, so so I had wrote a note, and I think I know the answer now, but every time a grasshopper appeared it was always coming up yeah like out of the ground even like in an alley where there probably wasn't anywhere to come up from i guess now that you say that it probably was the same shot they used but i i just wonder what the obsession was with the coming up from somewhere i would say the limitation of that was the shot they had and they kind of had to try to be creative i in the the alley shot i assumed it was maybe coming up from like maybe a sewer or something. I don't know. It, yeah. And, and there are a lot of things that I didn't actually notice, but if you go to IMDb or Wikipedia, you see all these errors, like, you know, they're shooting in the wrong direction from what the grasshoppers are coming. And like you said earlier, people like screaming. And I didn't actually notice that watching, but knowing that now, and if you were looking at it, you know, under a microscope. That, I really questioned the people. Why, why were the people all having picnics and why, why were there large herds of people in the streets running from one side of the street to the other? It's stock footage, folks. That's They were using what they had, but the stock footage didn't necessarily go logically with what is happening in the film. Same thing with a lot of the military stock footage. It was this pretty obvious in this movie? And it, you get that again in these films, but I think there's ways to use stock footage creatively well, and logically, and I, I think we didn't quite get that in this movie i I agree 100 percent. however there was at the beginning again in the part that i thought was good where they did use stock footage and a an overlay or or whatever it's called that i thought was very effective that was when they went to the town of ludlow that had been completely destroyed obviously stock footage of some poor town that a tornado had gone through and they had uh, the reporter you know in front of that i thought that looked pretty good I would agree. I mean, there, there was some stock footage that worked well in this movie. A lot of it that didn't for me. Probably low budget, limited amount of time, uh, and you're just trying to do the best you can with, with what you've got. And again, I didn't hate it. I enjoyed it for what it was worth. But there's just a lot of things in this movie that kind of stand out to me, whereas in other films, I'm probably a bit more forgiving. I just have one other comment, and then I have a question for you. So we've talked about how this lies in the scope of other giant insects and giant monster movies. How do you feel it lies just within the scope of Burt I. Gordon movies? So we we mentioned he had only done one before this, and then after this he did Cyclops, Amazing Colossal Man, Attack of the Puppet People, War of the Colossal Beast. I think when you look at, you know, sure, there's there's those big questions of how how could this big guy be missing as he's wandering around the countryside. I, I found, like, Amazing Colossal Man, War of the Colossal Beast more entertaining again i think the beginning of the end is probably one of his weaker efforts and i think it has to do i think with with some of the special effects i think really kind of hurt the film do you think it's because this is one of his first films and he's probably probably i I think you know 
you're, he had this, again, I think he had this grand vision. He, he, why else would you get 200 grasshoppers? I think he had an idea of what he wanted to do. And then when the grasshoppers start eating themselves, limited budget, limited time, what are you going to do? So you, you do the best you can with the five or six or 12 grasshoppers that you have left and try to make as, as many much as you can, stock footage, reuse it, what have you. I think this is a movie that had a, had a grand vision, but with special effects and budget being as, as they were, is a movie that just wasn't going to be able to be uh, as effective in 1957 as maybe it could have been later on down the line. Okay, so I'll wrap my comment into a response to your answer to my question. I would like to think it's because it was early in his career as well. I mean, I really, as you know from our previous podcast, enjoyed Amazing Colossal Man, War of the Colossal Beast. I haven't seen a couple of those after that. But 19 years after, beginning of the end, he made The Food of the Gods. Similar, he, he's obsessed with the giant things. Lots of giant things in that movie, primarily rats. He uses some of the same techniques 20 years later that he used in Beginning of the End. And the example, and actually I think this is a cool effect. It's of the grasshoppers climbing up a tall building in Chicago. When you see still photos of that, that looks pretty effective. And it does to a certain extent in the movie. They're crawling up. However, when the grasshopper puts its foot into the sky and is... is held flat because this is just a picture or a, a yeah. postcard or something, you know, that's takes away the magic, I guess. Well, in Food of the Gods, it's the same thing with the giant rats. There's a log cabin, a log cabin that's very 3D with curved logs that even if we were climbing it, we could stick our feet in between to climb up. But these rats are climbing it, and it is just flat as can be. There, There's nothing for their paws to get a grip. So that's basically the same technique, I'm sure. Um, it's bloodier and, and more modern in that sense, but I, I just feel like he found a, a gimmick, giant things, and a, a special effect that he really liked and really didn't have much evolution over the course of his career. And that's, you know, I, I think, um, again, probably you're looking at budget, you know, and, and, and the director who's kind of, done a lot of these these monster flicks so to speak you know isn't going to get necessarily the top dollar in hollywood and so you kind of again you do what you know how to do with what you've got and uh he probably had a lot of restrictions and so let's just use you know the technology that he did 20 years earlier it'll be fine now yeah as you said not much advancement i think again limitations by how much money you have to work with so, well, we've done it once again. We've gone uh, way longer than we thought we would, just talking about one simple little movie. Any last words on Beginning of the End? Um, it's readily available on DVD. There's an Image Entertainment release in 2003, which I guess is out of print. I have the Hen's Tooth version from 2010, uh, which had a Samuel Arkoff audio interview, a couple of trailers, pretty bare bones for the most part, but I thought it was a decent presentation. I've heard some people complain that the film looked soft or fuzzy at times. The version I had appeared fine, so I didn't see that that complaint whatsoever. I, It's readily available. It's out there uh, if you so desire. Uh, worth adding to your collection, despite some of the negative things I said about it. It's a giant bug movie. Uh, it's a fun way to spend an hour and 11 minutes um, and uh, it certainly is worth checking at least once. An hour and 11 minutes, that's all it was? 
Uh, was it longer than that? Or maybe I'm thinking of another movie. Maybe, maybe I did see another movie last night. So, oh, 76 minutes almost. I okay. Mean, hour 15. That's hour yeah, 15, basically so, the same. Yeah. It did seem a little bit longer than that because I think it kind of drug a little bit towards the end. So not that long of a movie easily could be uh, an afternoon matinee on a rainy day or maybe a double feature with, uh, maybe a slightly better flick to, to, uh, end out your double feature great i don't have anything else to add i think i shared all my comments and don't want to repeat so let's take a quick break when we come back we'll run through birthdays anniversaries video releases and all that good stuff we let things pile up in the dvr we add them to our queues we wait for the dvds and blu-rays we time shift the time shifters podcast sci-fi horror fantasy superheroes comedy action film television maybe some not so current events find us on itunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com we are back and while we were off air richard remembered something very important that i cannot seem to remember to do at the beginning of each episode would you tell us what that is please well we are part of the phantom podcasting network uh, a uh, great selection of fellow horror film podcasts, and uh, we are proud to be a part of that. That's how our feed gets out there to you, the listeners. So uh, we would be remiss if we did not mention the Phantom Podcasting Network that I stumble saying over, I think, every episode. So maybe by episode 25, we'll get it, we'll get it right. And that can be found at downrightcreepy.com, uh, iTunes, on uh, ClassicHorrors.club and SoundCloud, all, all kinds of places where you can find the podcast. Birthdays, we've got a few uh, significant ones in July. First of all, uh, July 6th, Janet Lee from Psycho. Oh, this is a perfect segue. You know, we get off track sometimes. I acquired something a couple days ago that I need to show you a picture of. I have acquired a... A, a copy of a life mask of Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> How in the world did you get that? Uh, you, you, you a st- copy of a life it, mask. Yeah, you know, you know, you've seen the life mask yeah, out there, right. and they do have copies of them out there. You know, and it just uh, a friend had one that that was a, they had acquired. They didn't want it. They gave it to me, and I. It needs a little love and tenderness because it's it's a little worse for wear. But the actual mask itself is in good condition. I have no idea where I'm going to put it, but it's probably going to go in the media room, and it's kind of a cool thing. Of course, I thought it was funny. I'm doing the Hitchcock journey over at my podcast, kccinephile.com. And, is it uh, a podcast, though, or is it a blog? It's a blog, and I called it a podcast. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm hungry, folks. It's been a long recording session. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of funny. I see this this Hitchcock uh, life mask, and I was like, uh, I've acquired it, so I will show you a picture. But yes... And that's that's such a recognizable face. Sometimes I see those and I can't because they're all one color. I can't really recognize the person, but Hitchcock. I Hitchcock is pretty yeah. irrecognizable. So yeah. yeah, I'm thinking maybe like above the fireplace mantle. So it's just like staring at you, sort of during all the movies I watch, giving me nightmares at night. Probably better there than in the bathroom. Probably so. This one's just for you. I probably wouldn't have mentioned it, even though we have talked about him before. But July seventh. John Pertwee, your boy, John Pertwee. 
Yes, John Pertwee, and I would be remiss of saying that there was a Doctor Who sighting at Monster Bash. Someone was dressed up as the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker. So I have to at least get one reference to Doctor Who in every episode, and that I forgot to say that. Thank you for reminding me. And that's another thing. I was disappointed there wasn't much cosplay. I was a, I, You see pictures from previous Monster Bashes of these fantastic Invisible Man, and there, I didn't see... There wasn't a lot of cosplay this year, no. No, I, I, I don't know if there was any reason behind it. There was certainly good crowds. I think I had heard that they had some record attendance, and certainly the, the panel rooms were standing room only for the most part. So, uh, But yeah, not a lot of cosplay. But maybe next year we should do that. You know I am the Brookside award-winning Halloween costume from The Mummy a few years back. Well, uh, Martha Stewart taught me how to make this incredible mummy that really looked amazing. So I, I want to... We're gonna com- we're gonna commit you to that. You're you're yeah. committed. Monster Bash 2018. Yes, you're going to be the most. Oh, that's such a messy, hard costume, though. So anyway, all right, back uh, to birthdays. Fred Gwynn, Herman Munster, July 10th. Todd Browning, July 12th. Quick note on him. Of course, you think of him as being a, a classic, brilliant director. Dracula, uh, Freaks. But we listened to a what eight hour Universal podcast and. Uh, they said some less than kind things about him in some of his movies. It was an interesting podcast. I can't remember the name of it. We'll have to, maybe that's our business for next time. It is certainly worth downloading. This This uh, is a series of podcasts. They have a three-part uh, Alfred Hitchcock series. Uh, they've got a uh, uh, an episode on Sherlock Holmes. And these are six, seven, eight, nine-hour podcasts. Hitchcock, I think, is going to add up to be, I think, almost 24 hours uh, incredibly detailed. We didn't agree with everything that was said. There, there was some, there was uh, a lot of cool information thrown out, and there were some harsh things that were said. We'll have that for you next time. Recommend you get it. Free to download off of uh, iTunes. Uh, well, well put together podcast with a lot of information. Great for long uh, long car rides. But uh, yeah, we didn't agree with everything. Yeah, that let's was do said. talk about that next time because I've got some comments about that too. Uh, July 22nd, James Whale, so one of Todd Browning's uh, contemporaries, I guess. This one I'm including, not that she's not significant, but I just love attempting to say the name. And I practiced, but watch me probably botch it now. July 29th, Maria Uspenskaya. Wow. How they do? Uspenskaya. You did very good. I think you I like it. saying that, Uspenskaya. Better than I would have done, yeah. and I'm not even going to attempt it. Yeah. And then uh, July 31st, Mar- Mario, Mario. <laughs> I can pronounce Uspen. <laughs> no, <laughs> Uspenskaya, but not Mario. Mario Bava, July 31st. So those are just some of the significant birthdays. As far as movies that came out in the month of July, on the 16th, we had uh, The Alligator People in 1959. Uh, the same day, a year earlier, The Fly came out. Um, July 20th of 58 was Frankenstein, 1970. July 22nd of 59, Plan 9 from Outer Space. July 22nd, 77, was The Hills Have Eyes, the original Wes Craven. Coincidentally, July 27th, 1949, Mighty Joe Young premiered uh, in New York City. Amityville Horror was July 27th. It says 1949, but what year was that? 78, I believe, Amityville Horror, yeah. Uh, If it's the the original, then yeah, it'd be 78. Yes, no Ryan Reynolds, so... And then The Tingler was July 29th, 1959. And this will be past when this airs. However, today, July 1st, was also the release anniversary of 
How to Make a Monster. Uh, it's a movie we've talked about once or twice here. Yeah, everything comes back to How to Make a Monster. I think we've talked least. about movies from 57 and 58 in almost every episode of this, this podcast. So I think sooner or later... We're going to get away from from movies. We're running out of films from that time period. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as the TV terror guide, a couple things coming up on TCM. I wanted to mention on July eighth is a whole evening of films directed by James Whale. That's in the uh, the Essentials series on TCM. And then there's a couple days in July that they just have all day horror movies. On the thirteenth, we have Mad Love, Seventh Victim, The Sorcerers, The Brain That Wouldn't Die. Horror Hotel and the Terror. That's an odd assortment of films. Yeah, I I looked for a, a common theme in these and I, I couldn't easily come up with it. But Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon, I bet it's there somewhere. July eighteenth, Vampire, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde from nineteen twenty, The Wasp Woman, Wolfman, The Reptile, Green Slime, Picture of Dorian Gray, and From Beyond the Grave. July twenty sixth, The Body Snatcher, The Bat, Bedlam, Diary of a Madman. Cat People, House of Wax, Curse of the Cat People, and House on Haunted Hill. So that's at least, I think, every other one of those is Vincent Price. Yeah, there's some Val Luton in there as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And then finally, and this is of interest to you and I'm sure other listeners, all month long, it's they're celebrating 50 years of Hitchcock. Oh, wow. So uh, it's one night a week, I think, is, is full of Hitchcock movies all through the month. Excellent. And then finally, we have new releases coming to home video. I'm doing this a little different this time. We've been just reporting on announcements no matter when they come out. I thought it might be more beneficial just to go with what the releases are for this month. And so therefore, we may have repeated some of these. But um, if you want a fresh reminder on when to rush out to Best Buy or order on Amazon, on the 11th of July from Shout Factory is The Man from Planet X. On the 18th from... And I say Shout Factory, but Scream Factory, uh, is The Bat People on the 18th. On the 18th also is a double feature from Scream Factory, The Night of the Sorcerers and The Lorelei's Grasp. On the 18th, not classic horror, but definitely related, widely available, I'm sure, is Kong of Skull Island. Yes. I enjoyed that very much, and I've actually been waiting for that to come out. It's been out on uh, digital for a while, and it seems like, it's digital, a long re- wait. digital releases are coming out quicker and quicker after the theatrical run and a longer gap before the the actual physical media and and I think that's just the ongoing attempt to try to lure people to go digital and get away from the actual physical media. Sorry, I'm old school. I'm going to I'm going to keep adding my DVDs to my collection and keep adding shelves if I need to. Yeah, I got to have that packaging. It's too cool. Yeah, and I think it used to be like Friday was digital and then the next Tuesday was the uh, DVDs or Blu-rays. But yeah, it is definitely stretched because it's probably pushing a month since Kong has been on digital by the time it comes out. And then on the 25th, The Zodiac Killer uh, from the 70s. We've talked about that. One movie in August just to uh, whet your appetite, which is another one I've been waiting for a really long time so I could get it at home is Shin Godzilla. That's finally coming out uh, from Funimation. Definitely adding that to my collection. I'm not as big a fan of that as I know some people are, but I've got every other Godzilla film, every Gamera film. Yeah, it's just got to go. It's got to go. Is that it? Do we have 
possibly have anything else to talk about. I, I think we pretty much exhausted the run. We had a fantastic time at Monster Bash, fantastic time meeting everyone, all around just a fun time. I, I had uh, a lot of fun traveling with you. Uh, we, we had a lot of fun, even if it was an incredibly long 75-hour car ride home. It was only 13, but it was... Uh, Didn't feel like it. I did, mean, did, did, At the end of a, a long convention... And then trying to do that long stretch of a you know drive home, it was certainly a long day, but I had a lot of fun. Yep. And we obviously we're going back in 2018. I'm excited about that. We've got some uh, exciting stuff coming up in the short term. Locally, we've got Crypticon Kansas City. I think you're attending. I'm opting not. Monster Bash for me. Um, you know, from a financial aspect, folks, I'm broke. Uh, had a lot of fun stuff though uh, that I came back with, and I'm opting to to kind of hold out on the local convention. Uh, they just announced somebody that I think pushed you over the edge. Uh, Mr. Sam Jones, Flash Gordon himself, is going to be here. Very impressive guest list, I will say. Moving to a new location up in uh, St. Joe's, so I think that'll be interesting. I who knows? I may do an eleventh hour change of my mind and go next weekend, but. Uh, uh, beyond that, I think it's two weeks, the fourteenth. It, it is, yes, it is. It's more two time weeks. to contemplate and decide. That is true. That another next, payday, perhaps between now and then. That is true. I was think, okay, my my minor conflict that I had is now out the window. See, I folks, I'm going to probably go and spend more money. My name is Richard, and I can help. <laughs> um, what do you What do you want to plug? What are you doing on your blogs? And uh, you've got some other news too about a, another podcast opportunity yeah, I, I, something came my way uh the uh memiverse monthly podcast uh christopher mims monthly podcast that he does to help promote his universe of films um derek uh from uh, monster kid radio has been doing a, a a segment over there for a while called the creature connection just a little thing he does i was asked to do something and so i don't know when the episode comes out i just recorded it and uh, it's going to be about a five to ten minute segment on the monthly podcast called the Kansas City Crypt. The first segment's going to be me kind of doing a compare and contrast of the original Mummy from 32 with Boris Karloff and the 2017 version with uh, Tom Cruise. Just going to be talking about movies, compare and contrast some months. Uh, just uh, a fun little segment that I'm going to be doing for that uh, for that podcast. Blog, kccinephile.com. Uh, Hitchcock Journey has been uh, back on track. Didn't do one last week uh, as we record this because of uh, the trip to Monster Bash, but I'm down to my last few rough Hitchcock films. Here within the next few weeks, I'll be doing Waltzes from Vienna, which I'm fairly certain is the bottom of the bottom, but then the very next week, it's The Man Who Knew Too Much with Peter Laurie, and things get exciting after that. So I'm about a less than a month away from starting to get into the good Hitchcock films, and I'm excited about that. And then doing my uh, sci-fi horror fest this summer, um, just watched a movie called The Undead, a movie from Roger Corman in, in 57 that, for some reason, has never been on my radar before. i totally unaware of it. I saw a poster of it at the poster room at Monster Bash, and then it was at every vendor table that I saw all weekend long. That's a fun little flick, and I'll be writing up about that and just doing some random films uh, for the rest of the summer in that fun little series. I had a stack of movies. I was going to watch them anyway, so I decided to to write for them uh, over at uh, kccinephile.com. 
And let's see what's happening. I, it's been a year since I started my blog, ClassicHorse.club, so I'm going to be trying to spiff that up a little bit. I had got a guy I, I told you about that's maybe going to do some art. Uh, so I'm change it up. I, you know, got to have change. I, I get bored if everything's the same. So watch for that there. Uh, and oh, I was published in a magazine, We Belong Dead, number nineteen, I believe. Uh, over in England. Hopefully copies of that will be making it over here shortly. I wrote about Pit and the Pendulum, so I'm dying to get my hands on that uh, to see how it turned out from the same publisher as um, the Unsung Horrors book, so it, I know it's going to look sharp. So next time on the podcast, we are planning to cover Frankenstein, the True Story, TV movie from the 1970s. It's been a while since I've seen it. I'm eager to watch that. I used to watch it a lot. It was on Channel 41 here in Kansas City, and we got that when I lived down in Wichita. Late 70s, early 80s, that, that popped up quite frequently on weekend afternoons, on, on weeknight movie schedule they had. I haven't seen that. I'm thinking possibly, possibly in 30 years, I haven't seen that movie. So I am definitely looking forward to revisiting that and we have a surprise we're not going to announce what it is but we've got something fun that if all pans out is going to be paired up with that and that'll be a first for the podcast here and i I, i'm excited about that i think that's going to be a lot of fun if if all the the stars and planets align uh next uh next month's episode is going to be a fun one yeah yeah so it'll just be that one movie because this other thing will will be the other half of the episode uh, that'll be our August episode. Let's can, can we commit that sometime within the few months after that we're going to pull the trigger and do that Dark Shadows episode? Oh, we can commit to that. Uh, I, I'm I'm actually really kind of itching to do Dark Shadows, and uh, we've also got some thoughts on that as well. Something fun we can do with that. So I think that possibly as early as September, no later than October, we're going to do a, the Dark Shadows episode where we cover both movies talk about the television series, and maybe have a special guest join us for that. So I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Yep, yep. Thanks for uh, sticking with us if you made it this far. I will call this meeting to an end, and we will see you next month. Thank you, everyone. Giant bugs, giant, giant bugs, giant bugs, giant, giant bugs. In a big crater.